Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. So just some general introductory remarks on a, a very intricate and sort of long topic. Um, so, <clears throat> so like very many of the products of Greek culture, much of Greek lyric poetry represents a very high level of achievement. Do we need it? Or speak louder. Okay. <laughs> um, in A. Lesky's words, uh, creations of supreme artistry <clears throat> never afterwards rivaled. The poetry was produced by persons ranked then and now as among the best poets of ancient Greek tradition. The remains of this poetry comprise a diverse body of work composed in varying Greek dialects representing various subject matter and themes embodied in differing forms, processionals, dirges, peons, parthenia, epikinia, to name, to name some. <clears throat> there is the general unity, trivial perhaps, that the lyric poems include no compositions in the meter of the, hep of the epic hexameter or in dramatic form, and less trivially, that they are all in some sense sung to the accompaniment of music. This aspect is generally signified by one of the Greek names for lyric poems, ode. Um, um, the Greek word ode, um, as it is derived from the Greek verb to sing, idein, and is loosely reminiscent of the sense of the English word ode as it might be used in connection with English lyric poetry. Although we possess certain relatively complete bodies of Greek lyric poems, for example, the odes of Pindar, the bulk of the works of this genre have come to us mainly in fragments. Despite this less than happy fact, the marked individuality of the different lyric poets comes through to us so clearly that in many ways it is less meaningful to treat this body of work as a whole than to treat each of the poets and their works separately. This, in fact, is the method of most of the major standard general accounts, for example, that of M. Bowers in his book, Greek Lyric Poetry, and that of Lesky in his, in his History of Greek Literature. Still, it will not be without profit for the purpose of a general introduction to this high Greek achievement to organize an account under the following overarching questions. In what sense is Greek lyric poetry post-Homeric? Who are the lyric poets, and what is the general and more specific connotations of the term lyric? And in what sense is Greek lyric poetry, as opposed to epic, tragedy, and comedy, personal poetry? We shall address the first two questions by remarks of a general historical nature. The last question we will address by taking a look at Archilochus's fragment 6 and part of Tartaeus's fragment 8. After a relatively brief analysis of Archilochus's poem, we shall set it in comparison to Tartaeus's, which will not be analyzed, on one point only, the specific intersection of their substantially similar subject matter in the poetic emblem of the battle shield. In what sense, then, is Greek lyric poetry post-Homeric? The poets and poems which have been compiled under the, and collected under the heading of Greek lyric poetry span a range of time from the early 7th to the middle 5th century BC. Um, Archilochus, for example, about 684 BC among the earliest, and Timotheus, say, about 451 among the latest. There are other later poets, but as M.L. West says, 450 is a notional 
limiting date because the poetry of the succeeding period is somewhat different in character with no very major figures among its poets. So if we date the monumental compositions of the Homeric epics to the middle of the 8th century, then we get a first sense in which Greek lyric poetry is post-Homeric. Homer's impact on Greek and indeed all later literature was so dominant that his influence cannot but be seen in the work of the lyric poets, but here it is more to the point to focus on the areas of difference that make lyric distinct from epic. As both Plato, chiefly in the Republic, and Aristotle in the Poetics have pointed out with a view to defining the nature of epic, the Homeric poems comprise a proportioned and unified plot narrated in hexameter lines with the inclusion at appropriate points of dramatic segments where the characters of the story speak in their own voice. In addition, as in Greek tragedy, the subject matter of epic is generally drawn from what we might call the elite tradition of Greek culture. In terms of delivery, epic is not sung to music, but at most recited in rhapsodic chant. In contrast, we find Greek lyric poems composed in many varying metrical forms, all except in epic hexameters. Unlike epic, most lyric poems were set to musical accompaniment, or at least in some sense sung. To the extent that the musical element was predominant, the metrics of the poems were apt to be complex, taking an individualized form determined by the music rather than the forms of more regular metrical patterns. Yet even poems written in ordinary elegiacs, for example, were also sung as were some written in iambics. In contrast to the large subject matter of epic, the subject matter of the Greek lyric is what we might call small, even perhaps occasional, for example, personal reactions to events in the poet's experience, hetero and homosexual love affairs, um, expressions of enmity against personal and public enemies, reactions to the experience of battle, descriptions of drinking bouts, reflections on old age, comments in the, on the politics of the day, and in certain circumstances, even commentary on mythical stories. If we, if we may sometimes employ the notions of narration, dramatic voice, or even plot in the analysis of Greek lyrics, it is not for the sake of understanding the meaning of a purposely developed story, but for the sake of uncovering the nature of the poet's personal reaction to impressions present to his own current experiences of life. So who are the lyric poets and what in general and more specific and, and what is the general and more specific connotations of the term lyric? Classical writers like Aristophanes and Plato refer to the poets of this new post-Homeric poetry of present experience as hoi melopoioi, the makers of melea. The term melopoioi took its significance from the original meaning of the word melos, member or part, and not from the word melpain, to sing. Um, so, so that melos, in its, in its derived meaning song, signifies poetry composed of three parts, namely words, music, and rhythm. According to Smythe in his book, Greek Melic Poets, the, ins the inclusion of a complete musical setting as one of the parts of the poetic composition distinguished Melic poetry from other genre like epic, elegiac, and iambic poetry, where the musical element was not as essential a part of the poem. Thus the word melos is, more specifically is a more specific designation for a poem of this kind than the more general term ode. 
In the terminology of later Alexandrian scholars, the designation Melopoyo gave way to that of Lurikoi, by which, the by which the Alexandrians meant to signify, first and most properly, the poets who composed poems to be sung, specifically to the accompaniment of the lyre, and then by extension to those who composed poems to be sung in other forms of instrumental accompaniment. Of the Lurikoi proper, the Alexandrians compiled an official canon of nine. Alcaeus, Sappho, and Anacreon, who composed poems for one voice, and Alcmon, Stesichorus, Ibicus, Simonides, Bacchylides, and Pindar, who composed for choral performance. This list of lyric poets, in the specific technical sense of the term, includes some very famous names. What reasonably educated person has not heard of Pindar or Sappho, but does not include other very great poets who are included under the more general sense of the term? Archilochus of Paros, for example, an iambicist and elegist, was, as West says, one of the great poets worthy to be named besides Homer and Hesiod, as, for example, he is in Plato's Ion at 531. Um, A1-3, here it is, he says, are you, are, are you Ion clever about Homer alone or also about Hesiod and Archilochus? So he's, uh, he's one of the big three here, right? But he's not specifically, uh, he's not a typical lyric poet because he doesn't write specifically for music put to the lyre, but still among the earliest and greatest of poets. So, um, in what sense is Greek lyric poetry personal poetry? Archilochus and Tertius. Um, Archilochus was born in Paros, son of Telesicles, who founded a colony in Thassos during the great age of Greek colonization, whither Archilochus followed his father about a generation later. He emigrated for a time to Thrace, but seems to have returned to Paros and died fighting in a war between Paros and Noxos. His love affair with Neobule, thwarted by her unwilling father Lycambes, was a well-known incident of his day. All these experiences form the subject of his poems, and although his metrical choices, iambics, trochaics, and elegiacs, cause his exclusion from the Alexandrian canon of nine, nevertheless the content of his poems, reactions to current events, military, political, and personal, justifies us in regarding him as the earliest lyric poet in the broader sense of, in the, broader sense of the term. Even though we know much less about the life of Tertius, his elegiacs contain vivid impressions about the Spartan involvement in the Second Mycenaean War. And thus, for reasons similar to those pertaining to Archilochus, history has also included him among the lyric poets. We shall now, now look at Archilochus fragment six. In comparison with a portion of Tartarus fragment eight, both composed in elegiacs, to explore the ideas of the poetry of personal experience and the fact of diversity among the lyric poets. As you will see, these poems intersect at the image of the battle shield, but to a remarkably dif different effect. So here's Tartius's poem here. Um, uh, and here's a little translation that I wrote so you could catch the meaning of it. And uh, this is a very bad translation. It's not even poetry. So what I'll do is I'll read you the first two lines so you can hear the, the, the basic metrical um, sense of the poem. I mean, and uh, I wish I could sing it, but, um, <laughs> but we don't know very much at all about, about the melody parts of lyric poetry. In fact, nothing really. There's no, there's no uh, 
evidence or fragments of musical notation until much, much later in Greek. So we don't actually know how it was sung, but in all, in all certainty it probably was. Some, a little piece like this, um, which uh, some people think is actually a complete poem, was probably performed at a private party or even possibly a, uh, a kind of more public symposium, but it was almost certainly sung. So the first line goes something like this. I'll try, um, and try to read it metrically so you can get a sense of the, at least the underlying meter. Aspidi men sa eon, tis angaletai hain parathamno, entos amo meton, kalipon uk ethelon, and so on. So that, that's, the, that's an elegiac. Um, the first line is a, is a hexameter which Homer would have used, but in combination with the second line, it becomes a co completely different meter that Homer never would have used. So even though the first line is a dactylic that you might find in Homer, the totality is an unhomeric, non-epic piece, and so therefore squarely within the lyric genre. So, okay, so now we're going to look at this poem. Let's read it so we can see what the, what, the, what the subject matter is, and then I'll give a little analysis, which will be a little technical, but I'll try to walk you through it with the, with the handy um, pointer thing here. Um, I have to refer to some of the Greek terms in order to make my point, so bear with me. Okay, so it goes like this, right? One of the sands is admiring my shield, which near a bush I left behind, albeit unwillingly, a blameless weapon. But I saved myself. What does that shield matter to me? Let it go. I'll get one again no less good. <laughs> so the poem is an elegiac in two couplets, which are directly connected by the particles men at the beginning of the first couplet, and debt, which actually the E's left out, but that's not a mistake, that's right. That at the beginning of the second couplet, um, the men-de connection signals either a tight coordination or an acute antithesis, but we will, we will not know which until that we see the poem unfold. Since the poem is recited predominantly in the first person, um, so right, um, uh, I, I, etc., right, I, um, since the poem is recited predominantly in the first person, we are entitled to take it as an account of Archilochus' own experience. The action or plot which Archilochus recites in the first couplet is simple. Under allegiance to an unnamed city, Archilochus is engaged in battle with the Thracian Saiyans, and in response to a dire situation, he drops his shield and runs. The second couplet is a commentary on the first, sort of like the end of a sonnet is a commentary on the, on the previous lines. Okay, Archilochus's choice of diction in the first couplet presents a first opportunity of interpretation. The couplet is replete with Homeric words. Archilochus's choice of, of angaletai and entos um, is reminiscent of the Homeric lines. You can see here I wrote them out. Um, is reminiscent of the Homeric line tamen ente angaletai. This word is that word. This word is a version of that word. So Archilochus is picking Homeric words to write his poem. Um, uh, so um, this Homeric uh, line here occurs at um, Iliad 18.131. I can't really remember what it's about, but that's where it is in Homer. Um, okay. Uh, um, his choice of, ame, uh, of amomaton, right? Um, there. This is a very interesting one. Blameless, the word means blameless, over a more ordinary Greek word, amouton, displays an intimate knowledge of the Homeric text 
as the word amaton, amomaton, occurs only once at Iliad 12.109 and nowhere else in the Homeric epics. This choice, therefore, confirms that Archilochus's use of Homeric diction is conscious and intentional. The Homeric coloring of the first couplet would not have been lost on a Greek audience, since any reasonably educated person of the day would have recognized the older epic phrasing, just as we can recognize Shakespearean terms of phrase in an otherwise non-Shakespearean piece. So the effect of Archilochus's choice of poetic diction, therefore, is to create in the audience Homeric expectations of the heroic ideals, among the most hallowed of which is that the hero does not run from battle. The locus classicus for this is Iliad 11.404 and following, where Odysseus in mortal danger addresses his own heart, and I'll quote partially from Homer here with some parts left out. So here's the Homer. It will be a great evil, this is Odysseus speaking to himself, it will be a great evil if I run, yet deadlier if I am caught alone. Yet still, why does the heart within me debate on these things, since I know that it is, a, it is the cowards who walk out of the fighting? But if one is to win honor in battle, he must by all means stand his ground strongly. And the end of the quote. It is therefore disgrace eternal to drop one's shield in battle and run as Archilochus does. And the umbrella of diction under which Archilochus composed his first elegiac couplet will have prompted his ancient Greek audience as it as it does us, who also know our Homer, to expect contrition or some similar reaction in the closing couplet, right? You drop your shield, you make a hero, you're, um, you're, 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 you're describing your dropped shield in Homeric terms, right? Here you're telling me I dropped my shield and I'm using words that no one can uh, but recognize come from Homer. And the whole Homeric epos, ethos of being brave and not leading battle is brought into here. So we're going to we expect here now for him to say, "I'm really sorry. I'm a bad person, and I'll never do it again." Right? Okay. So, um, but before we get there, he's a very intricate and and smart poet. Yet there is something more subtle to notice in Archilochus's use of Homer. The word "entea," which is the Homeric word. Right. Let's go back. This word here, entea, is a Homeric word, um, and Archilochus's version of it is ento. So keep that in mind. See, this is an e-n-t-e-a. That's the only letter you shouldn't be, you should have trouble with. And this is an e-n-t-o-s. Same word, just different forms. But this one occurs in Homer, and listen to what I say about this one. Okay. So, um, yeah, something more subtle in Archilochus's use of Homer. The word entea, armor is found only in epic language in this plural form, entea. Archilochus' use of the singular form, entos, appears to be a coinage of his own and is therefore at once Homeric and unhomeric. His use of this ambiguous diction insinuates that he may have something surprising in mind. As we will see momentarily, this word presents a hairline crack in the carefully chosen Homeric diction of the first couplet, through which Archilochus will, in the second couplet, shatter the traditional Homeric, Homeric ideal of military heroism. And in this subtle way, he prepares his audience for the coming iconoclasm. But I saved myself, he says at the beginning of the second couplet. That is to say, despite the weight of noble expectation impressed upon me by deeply held, nearly sacred Homeric tradition, the gospel truth, as it were, I dumped my shield, ran, and saved myself. Not only is this statement bold and shocking to traditional ears, 
it is thrown right back at Homer himself as the word, or is it, as this word, excessososa, right? As this word is very specifically, is a very specific Homeric form. It's found only in Homer. It, 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 it's, um, the other versions of it are much shorter and everywhere else in, in Greek, it would be the other version. This is specifically and only Homeric. So he announces his saving of himself. This means I saved myself. Um, in a particularly Homeric term that no one could but recognize as Homeric. So um, he throws right back at Homer himself as the word exesaosa is a very specific Homeric form which Homer would never have used in an articulation of such blasphemy. Thus Archilochus begins the concluding commentary of his poem in an, unapolo an unapologetic defiance of Homeric ideals. He continues in the same vein again in Homeric diction, this time used in a much different, to a much different effect than in the first couplet. Ereto. Here, here, here it is, Ereto. Um, let it go. A, at, at the beginning of this last couplet, this is another Homeric word, and it shows up in Homer in exactly the same form, in exactly the same sense. Um, uh, here and here. Okay, so not... And I don't know, again, I don't remember what those passages are, but the point is he's using a word that most people would recognize as coming from Homer. Um, Ereto, he says, that is, let it go, which very word also occurs at Homer, Iliad 9, 377 and 20, 349. He intentionally leaves this word without an object so that we can apply something here of the tripartite interpretive method of biblical hermeneutics. Literally, he means, let it go, referring to the discarded shield itself. Metaphorically, he means, let it go, referring to the idealized mores of the epic treatment of heroic warfare. And spiritually, he means, let it go, referring to the oppressive moral obligations that require one to prefer an empty honor to the treasure of his own life. So under this new illumination, which certainly will have bowled over Archilochus's Greek audience, we may revisit the first couplet for other now evident deviations from the Homeric ideal. Let's go back to that. Okay. The anonymity of the word tis, which means someone, it's an it's a indefinite personal pronoun. Where is my Greek student? Yeah. Um, so it's not naming anybody in particular, it's just some soldier grabbed his shield, right? The anonymity of tis, someone, in the first line is wholly inconsistent with the Homeric glorification of both the hero and the hero's enemies in, well, in the, in the well-known epic boasting and in the celebration of individual heroic life in the meticulous description of battle death. Further, the word thomnos, which here shows up in the form thomno, which means shrub, like a little bush, you know. Um, now, listen, this, this is subtle, but try to catch this, right? Um, the word, this word thomno, shrub, occurs at Iliad 17.66677 and 22.191 in, in two glorious Homeric similes, which are the hallmark of Homer's poetic high, of, of Homer's high art. Uh, so, get that, right? This word, even though it's insignificant in itself, shows up in two of the great similes that Homer always uses throughout the epic, which is a mark of Homer. Anyone who knows, I mean, even if you know very little about Homer, you know he, he elaborates his subject matter through these long, detailed similes. 
that Archilochus is using a Homeric simile word, which, which most people would have, I mean, most people knew their Homer well enough that they would remember in some sense, right? And the bush is kind of a common thing here. Um, so, but what he does here, he uses this word, right? Um, Archilochus brings this art down to the earth, down to earth in the less artificial poetry of personal experience by having his shield deposited in a scrubby growth which transform, transforms the glorious field of battle into ordinary dirt. <laughs> um, so again, all this bespeaks bold defiance of the Homeric ideal, but Archilochus, is, but Archilochus displays, new, displays the new brilliance of his poetry of personal experience in the surprising import of the last line. In uh, M.L. West's translation, it, this is my bad translation, in M.L. West's translation, he, he, he goes, I'll get another shield just as good. And the word here, just as good, is literally not worse, okay? Not worse. And so here, here I make something of that. Um, there is subtle irony in the doubly negative litotes, ooh, kakos, not worse, ooh, kakio, not worse, two negatives, right? Um, um, not worse, that is better. He might be taken to mean that he will make good the disgrace in battle another time with another shield, but the verb tesomai, are you? Case am I? Um, uh, may imply a simple purchase, and this is how we should take it here. Archilochus dropped his iPhone 5 in the sink, but no matter, he will just buy a new iPhone 6 and be no worse. <laughs> no worse off. Um, that is, ukakio for it. He is no iconoclast of Homeric ideals for the sake of, of for the sake of pragmatic realism. He is interested in himself alone and poeticizes his interest for, for others to experience. Whatever it is worth to them, it is of importance to him, Archilochus, as he sees the world through his own eyes. And here we have an example of a poem of personal experience, but one given with great awareness of the tradition from which it comes, and which it now leaves behind in a new poetic evolution. Okay, so now we'll look at Tertius. I'll spare you the Greek here and just read the... Um, Poem, right? This is uh, written to Spartan youth, uh, exhorting them to battle. Okay, but you, but you are the race of invincible Hercules. Um, the Spartans regarded themselves as as uh, de uh, descended from Hercules. Take courage. Zeus does not yet have a bent neck. Has uh, does not. That's bad translation. Zeus does, has not bent his neck away, meaning the outcome of the battle is still open. Right. Um, do not fear nor be afraid of the throng of men. Let a man, here it is, right? Let a man keep his shield erect in the forefront of battle. This is uh, the, the two places Archilochus is about shield, and here we have the uh, central emblem of the poem. Keep your shield erect in the forefront of battle. Value life, what does it say? Make life an enemy, and likewise the dark doom of death as dear as the rays of sun, right? Don't worry about death, it's your glory to die. For you know that the work of pitiless Ares is destructive. And we could do a Homeric analysis on this too, but I'll spare you it. And just, I want to make one point that pertains only to the shield here. Okay, so although Tartius writes about war, his poems are not epic in character. As West puts it, Tartius uses his medium to exhort his fellow citizens to fight to the death in defense of their community, winning glory and averting shame. These poems, perhaps more than Homer, give us an idea of what it felt like to be a young man in early Greece faced with the prospects of going to battle. That's the end of West's quote. 
Although these are not poems, although, although these are not poems of Tartarius's own experience, he recreates in his exhortations the experiences and emotions of young Spartan men in the face of, dan of the dangers of battle. For this reason, he has been included, like Archilochus, among the broader category of Greek lyric poets. The point of intersection between Archilochus's poems and that of Tartaeus, one which will set them in opposition, is of course the shield. That Archilochus abandoned his shield in battle and, and ran violates every principle implicit in Tartaeus's exhortation. Archilochus's emotional play with this episode of his life is antithetical, antithetical to every feeling Tartaeus is advocating for his young Spartans. But I saved my life, Archilochus says, and the emotional world which Archilochus builds around it is an absolute counterpoint to Tartarus's let a man keep his shield erect in the forefront, forefront of battle and the superstructure of patriotism within which he envelops it. The subject matter is the same, as is the central poetic emblem, the battle shield, but the emotions attached to them in the two poems is, dramatically, is diametrically opposed. We can see then, in these two fragments, one aspect of the brilliance of that body of work culminated, accumulated under the heading Greek lyric poetry. Archilochus and Tertius show in the extreme the celebrated diversity of emotions exhibited by the lyric poets. Diversity, however, is the negative of a much more significant positive point. If you pursue the body of work if you pursue the body of work of the Greek lyric poets, some to be accompanied by music and dance, others not, you will find that they have explored to the everlasting benefit of humanity a nearly infinite body of human emotions arising out of a nearly infinite variety of human activities, from war to athletic victory and defeat to love and hatred in human interactions and, and, and innumerably more. We have but to listen carefully to the voices of these poets to find those emotions with both with both, which both resonate with our own experience and some, for better or, wor or worse, which given our own situations in life, we might not have otherwise experienced. This, I think, is one of the chief joys of poetry, namely to find confirmation of our own response to the things in our world and to expand our sensibilities to other things outside the confines of our particular experience. In closing, I will take the liberty of noticing one aspect of Greek drama, which tonight is Dr. Pilsner's proprietary space. While no Greek tragedian or comedian, comedian is classified as a Greek lyric poet, every Greek tragedy and Greek comedy is composed of two substantially diverse parts, dialogue within which the action of the drama is developed, and choral odes, which, are in, fact, which in fact are something like independent lyric poems performed within the boundaries of the, of the dramatic composition. These choral odes are indeed lyric poems in the strictest sense of the term, as they are set to music, sung, and embellished by dance. Whether such lyric songs are essential to drama as such, they are for certain an essential part of what the Greeks understood by dramatic poetry. Here then we see both continuity and divergence. Tragic choral odes owe a debt to the work of the lyric poets, but also represent by their combination with dramatic voice a departure in a new direction in Greek poetic composition. With that, I hand the baton of learning to my colleague, Dr. Pilsner, whose business it will be to explore further the genre of Greek drama. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.